Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. It is our second last episode of the season. Oh, it is. We're almost done. Oh, my God. <laughs> we, we're getting there. Not going to lie, we're a little bit burnt out, oh, but that's I am okay. I'm feeling a little bit frazzled <laughs> and this weather is truly not helping. I don't, although you do look quite cosy for Queensland, I don't really know what the weather is like up there, but everyone it's cold in Sydney. Because can we just remember that like no house up here is Oh, built my God, I know. Have I have heating. full sympathy. So it's very cold. Um, you've got yeah. thin wood walls all around you (laughs) yeah um yeah sometimes it is colder inside the house than outside in winter and that has been true but it's given me excuse to break out all my winter woolies from England so that's getting they're getting aware before we go over there in autumn so I I appreciate that that is fun bust out the old gear Meanwhile, yeah. all I keep thinking this winter is that I'm definitely going to be really cold over there because I'm like, I barely have enough winter clothes to get me through June and July in Sydney. <laughs> no, just remember that there's heating everywhere. So you just need layers and a coat and you'll be fine, honestly, in inside houses and stuff and wherever you stay, it's nice and cozy. Yeah, so that is definitely yeah. better. All this talk of uh, being cold and everything is uh, the complete opposite of what my quick little recommendation is going to be today Um, because of America is currently in their summer, of course. So they're releasing all the Mm -hmm. summer content, including the Summer I Turned Pretty TV show on Amazon. Michelle, I don't think you ever read any of these books, no. No, I didn't. Did you? No. Do you know anything about this series at all? I have no idea of the premise. I just know the books and the titles. So what's it actually about? Yeah. So you know that it's the same author who wrote To All the Boys I Loved Before, those books. Mm -hmm. And you've seen at least one of those movies, correct? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's another love triangle. (laughs) Um, and it's very, I have to say, it's quite interesting watching this show in 2022, because I'm sure like, even without having read the books, I feel quite confident that it's probably pretty, um, like accurate to the books because the show felt like YA of about 10 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it was like cheesy. It's funny how things have I evolved. Know. But it was, and I just like suddenly watching it and like, I guess knowing it was kind of a love triangle, like, you know, like that's like the blurb is like, she's torn between. I feel like every second book was a love triangle. was a love triangle. Ago, you know, like the Hunger Games, like everything was a love triangle. This is actually a really interesting one for you to recommend given our interview this week because we're talking like lots about the evolution of like new adult and the evolution of things later on like at the end of this episode yes we get a bit technical about genre and the history of YA so it is a bit interesting actually because 
this is completely like classic of like our teenage era YA romance. So for for my part anyway, I didn't actually read a lot of these books. I know of a lot of them from Bookstagram and I know they're people's favorites, but obviously the ones that were really massive was like Twilight and The Hunger Games, which had more of that fantasy element. And then I suppose like the John Green and that sort of thing, which I don't think he had any love triangles. I don't remember. Anyway, (laughs) so the summer I turned pretty, Belly, Isabel, Belly, and her brother and her mother spend every summer with her mum's best friend and her two sons at like their beach house wherever in America they happen to be. I forget already where they where this is. But it's completely that idyllic American summer thing where they're away on holiday for two months. That's so yeah. weird. And so the story ta- it's so weird to me. Anyway, the story takes place the year they're all like 16 17 18 or whatever like all the kids so all the boys have jobs and belly um has been sort of roped into being a debutante and she's doing like the deb ball fundraising activities and making friends with the other girls who do that but the main gist of the story and why everyone watches it is that she's caught between two brothers the two boys that she's grown up with it's the classic thing of like five minutes into this show i was like i know how love triangles work you're gonna get with the one that none of us like and then in the second book you're with the one that we all like and then in the third book you get back with the one that none of us like (laughs) that's what happens in to all the boys I feel like The Hunger Games, this doesn't happen because she's never really with Gail and I personally like Peter, but this is how love triangles work. And then, (laughs) I mean, it's the first book of a trilogy. I will be watching the show if it continues because I got hooked, but I did put a thing on my Instagram story being like, okay, I watched it. Like, it was fun. Um, It was all, like, summery. I loved the relationship between the mother characters. Um, One is an author. Um, One finds out that her cancer has come back, and so she's, like, really trying to enjoy this, like, last summer before she tells her children, which is really sad. Um, So, you know, the show, like, totally got me. It was, like, a really enjoyable, easy watch, and I was like, okay, I'm in. And so I put on my Instagram story, should I read the books now? And I got like five messages from different people, thank you, saying, don't bother, the second and third books are not that good. And I was like, oh, interesting. I know, they were like the first one's cute, but the second and third ones aren't. And I have to wonder, because I want to know now, like what the basic storyline is with how she sort of flits between these two boys. Because after watching the show, the brothers' names are Conrad and Jeremiah, And most people seem to be Team Conrad, who is the one that I did not like. And so if people Hmm. don't like the books because she actually gets with Jeremiah and ends up with Jeremiah, then maybe I'm interested. But I don't know. I've not done that much research. Do you want someone to just I just want someone to tell me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could Google it. I really, watching the pilot, like the first episode, I was like 10 minutes in and there was like a scene where, you know, she looks at him and then the other brother is like cute and flirting with someone else or something and I was like oh my god I want to like google what happens and I was like nah just try and enjoy it don't spoil it for yourself wonderful okay so well that that's a fun. super fun light watch for anyone and it will make you a little bit nostalgic for all the like 
I mean, teen romances and everything. I've been seeing heaps of memes. It's like, you know, I'll never have a teen romance because I'm in my mid twenties <laughs> now. <laughs> like I've missed the chance. Well, I think teen romances sound horrible, but anyway, um, <laughs> it sounds very awkward and anxiety-inducing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a YA recommendation as well this week, and this is Queer Witchy YA. Um, so it's so funny that you said that, like, that YA is like the YA of 10 years yeah. ago, because I think this YA, which is All Our Hidden Gifts by Caroline O'Donoghue, feels very progressive and very, like... Oh, I hate, I hate to be like, it feels woke, but it does, um, in a good way though. So, um, there are characters that are questioning where they are on sort of relationships and things like that. Um, and you know, there's exploration of their questioning of their sexuality. Um, there's a sister who's queer. Um, there is, uh, one of the characters, which we don't see much of in this book uh, because she goes missing, she wears a hearing aid. And so there's just like, there feels like there's lots of diversity just in the story. Yeah. Just because, um, not, in a, not in a bad way. I didn't mean that to sound bad, but like, it's just, just part of, of the people. story. Yeah. In Different. a way that it wasn't like 10 years ago. Um, anyway, so yeah. all our hidden like- gifts literally the john green book that's like where the guy has had a crush on like 12 different catherines or something do you remember that one yeah (laughs) yeah um so all our hidden gifts is um about Maeve who gets detention one day and has to clean out this weird cupboard in the one of the old basement classrooms of the school and she finds these tarot cards And she basically just starts giving tarot readings and really gets into it. And then one day during a tarot reading, she has a fight with her former best friend and you sort of discover why and how that unfolded later. Uh, And then the next day her friend Lily disappears. Um, So then it sort of unravels. And so we see a lot of Lily's brother, Ro, who is questioning his sexual identity and is also someone who Maeve has a huge crush on. (laughs) And um, we also get introduced to Fiona, who is a new friend that Maeve makes, who helps her with like the tarot card side of things. And then they all sort of team up to try and find Lily. And there's a lot of like mystical, witchy shenanigans and some Irish folklore. And it's it's really fun. It's like a fun YA, but with some serious undertones. There's a lot in there about like bigotry and some real right wing groups doing some things, um, which is not good. Yeah. But yeah, it's sort of some serious things, but overall quite a fun YA to read um like I just got into it and really enjoyed it and surprisingly for me because I don't read series you know this but I'm looking forward to reading the second book and following oh goodness. these teens on their oh, adventures congratulations yeah, Michelle think... you actually want to read a book oh, too I know um I think it's because it's not like left on a cliffhanger or anything yeah. like that and it does sort of feel like you could leave it there if you wanted to 
but I like all the characters and I'm really interested to keep seeing on how it um, sort of unfolds and stuff. Yeah, I enjoyed seeing the queer relationship unfolding as well between Maeve and her crush, Ro. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that was quite fun. So what yeah. – so she gets really into tarot cards and like that sort of thing. So is that sort of the main witchy element or does it get a bit more mystical? Yes. There's some spells and stuff as well. Ah, okay. Yeah. She's essentially just has an aptitude for it and you learn sort of more about that later on. She's perhaps more open to this sort of stuff than ordinary people. Oh, I love that. It's kind of it's kind of weird to ex- it's kind of weird to explain, but that's sort of how it yeah. unfolds in the book as well. Yeah, right. that yeah. she's like, I don't really know why this is a thing, or like, is it? I don't know. Like, she also is just like doing tarot readings. She's like, huh, that's weird. I think that, that might have like, <laughs> I think I'm come right. Through. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, oh crap. <laughs> so yeah, it's really it's very Ooh. interesting. I think you yeah it. no, I mean. Listen to me, like, gasping in, like, everything all the way through your little spiel. Well, you've wanted to read this since I said to you queer witchy YA. So, I mean, yeah, those yeah. three words, I am in. In, absolutely. And it was it, uh, what I liked as well, that it was, like, queer characters and stuff without that being the centre of yeah. the story too. Like, it was cool to see Maeve having a crush on someone who is, like, I think – sort of falls into the sort of bisexual camp but is sort of questioning their gender and sexual identity Mm. throughout yeah so I think it but I think it's interesting to see like the that someone having the crush on that person rather than that being like oh my god I'm figuring it out yeah 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 I I really liked that it was just I just couldn't think of another situation where that's sort of been where they're not also questioning their sexuality yeah sounds lovely so how many books are in this series so far do you know I think the second one's out already there's a third one coming out look at that when do you think the last time you read a trilogy was Probably I 10 years ago. Don't like know. the ones I was talking about. Yeah, probably. About. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but did I? I don't know if I have actually finished it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I did. I get bored. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's too long between books and I don't know what's oh happening. Oh my god. I mean, yeah. Such a uh, good point. Yeah, especially when they leave them like on Cliff. I'm like, oh please. Yeah. Anyway. Not here to moan about those no, things. Just reading the things that I know I'll enjoy. Um, speaking of. Speaking yeah, of. That is exactly what this book <laughs> was for us. A YA setting community theatre. Sign us up. Yes. And also lots of chat is about reality TV in in this yes. interview as well. About Jodie's Not going to apologise for it. Not the one we were technically yes. there to talk about, but still. But as we record this and as this episode goes out, her other book that we mention here for the right reasons is going to be out. So by the time you're listening to this, it will be a release day for that book as well. And I'm sure by the end of listening to this, you will also You'll want have to read her to reality TV TBR. book. Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm going to, well, maybe I should finish watching Love Island first, but here for it. I'm, I'm so excited. So yeah, please enjoy our chat with Jodie, we certainly had fun.
Our guest today has written a young adult paranormal trilogy and adult rom-coms. She's also an academic at Deakin University, where she teaches literature studies and creative writing and researches romantic love and popular culture. She's also written two academic books exploring female virginity losses in literature and new adult fiction. Today, though, we are mainly going to be chatting about her first contemporary romance for young adults, Libby Lawrence is good at pretending. Welcome Jodie McAllister to the podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Where, I mean, all of these things, YA, romance, community theatre, like popular culture. Oh my God, like all our favourite things. We can't wait. (laughs) Oh, it really is. And also, I, before we get started, I need to sort of say that I studied um, at Deakin externally and I honestly don't know I was like when I saw that in your bio I was like I don't think she was one of my lecturers I don't know I really don't I started at Deakin in 2018 (laughs) so if you were there after that then we might have had some overlap it might have happened yeah no I was doing my master's incredibly slowly and then dropped out and just did the graduate diploma of writing and literature um because I'd done enough of the academic classes um from 2017 no 16 2016 um through till last year when I finally bowed out (laughs) well then there is a strong chance Um, that you would have taken ALL 728 literary narratives with me yeah I think so yeah yeah but I feel like well, maybe I, maybe that was like maybe that was like 2017. Maybe I did that. Before. Maybe she took know. it before yeah. you were teaching it. Yeah, maybe I don't because oh, I was like I was just like I was trying to rack my brains and be like that name like is it familiar to me in that context? I was like no, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, um, very I was like that's so weird, isn't it? Um, so yeah, I was I'm very excited to chat about your academic stuff later because one of the classes I did on young adult literature I had to do a short story and I did it um, about someone trying to lose their virginity so I'm super excited (laughs) to come back to that and talk about that so we will get back to the virginity losses later Um, (laughs) but first I suppose we should talk about Libby Lawrence first so can you tell us a bit about the book Jodie? Yeah so Libby Lawrence is good at pretending is at its most basic level a book about theatre kids with too many emotions favorite kind. <laughs> I mean, are there yes. theater kids who don't have too many emotions? No. Like, I don't think they exist. I, one, yeah, one does not exist without the other. Yeah. I mean, I was a theater kid and I had so many feelings. Oh uh, so it's set uh, on in a campus theater group. Our heroine Libby is in second year university. So unlike a lot of young adult fiction, this isn't set in high school. It's set on campus. I mean, I'm a university lecturer. I understand about campuses. So this is a little bit of a write what you know, I suppose. <laughs> and Libby's been in the chorus for a long, long time in this theater company. But through a regime change, new power players have come into be because all, all community theater is a hotbed of political intrigue and this time around Libby's got the lead in the play and they're doing much ado about nothing so over the course of the book we see them uh, put on uh, like rehearse and put on this production but we also see Libby come to terms with the fact that she is acting not just on stage but in many aspects of her life and learn how to speak her truth. Love it yes and before we go on as well I need to check have you read The Appeal by Janice Hallett? No I have not. Okay it's adult crime fiction, but the thing is, and this is why I keep telling Caitlin to read it, 
first of all, it's told through like emails and all that sort of like found document stuff, which I love. I'm a sucker for that. But it is all set in community theatre. And I just like when you were talking about like the regimes and the power players, I was like, I think you would love that. 100%. I'm going to read that straight away. (laughs) Top of the PBR. Like literally... I, I read it in like 24 hours, just powered through it. And I had no idea. I knew it was like about a murder, but I had no idea about like the community theatre element. And it's just, it's so spot on because there's like th- these particular families mm. that have certain roles and it's all oh, yeah. very, yeah, it's it's so spot on. I, I love it. Yes. But it, I mean, as we've just said, like so many feelings in community theatre and just like Right for so many different stories. You could just, you could set so many different stories. In I it. feel like we should present our qualifications, Jodie. Oh, so yeah. I did, <laughs> I did drama I have all less. through high school um, and school high school musicals and then community theatre both on stage and on crew for the, I don't know, five years or something post high school. And then I moved to Sydney and I don't, and then COVID and everything. Yeah. Um, and that's actually how Michelle and I met oh. is that a friend of hers at the paper encouraged her to be in a local production of Anything Goes wow. and we met during that. Oh, and then we realised we were both massive book nerds yeah. and we were like, let's and the rest be millennials history. and start a podcast. And that's uh, yeah. why our podcast <laughs> is called Better Words because it's a line in Anything Goes. Oh, so. yeah. that's, that's, that's <laughs> the story. story. I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, so that's our story um, and that's our Yes, qualifications for being so into the fact that this is like a community <laughs> theatre novel. And, yeah. yeah, and we and love young theater. adult as well. So just yeah. love that those things have come together in this too. Yeah. I also was a community theatre kid. I, I, I need this to, yes. to, to be known. That, yes, yeah. this is what, yeah, no, this is what I was going to ask. Like, I'm curious, like, what's your relationship to community theatre? Yeah, I grew up in community theatre. So if there was a form of drama you could take, I took it as a child. I remember when I was quite little, my mother yeah. my mother put me in this class. It was a music class where you tried 10 instruments over the course of the year. And at the end of the year, they told you which one you were best at and you should learn. And at the end of the year, they were like, she should do drama. Keep her away from musical <laughs> instruments. And so I was in drama classes from the age of about eight. And I did a lot of Steadfords, which that maybe that's another book I'll write oh, one day yeah. is about a Steadford life. Oh, but yeah, Steadfords. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When I was a teenager, oh. I discovered community theatre, so I did uh, quite a lot of shows with my my local community theatre during high school. Then I moved to Canberra for university. I ran the theatre company attached to my college for three years, and then I moved into broader community theatre there. So if you follow me on Instagram, I just did a deep dive into my, like, dark community theatre past. So if you want to see some really embarrassing photos of teenage Jody, you don't have to dig too far on my Instagram to find them right now. <laughs> I love, love that. that. I know. Oh, Maybe I must like... say, I was much more of the musical person when I was at school, um I'm very I was very shy so I was like in the band for like six years and all that sort of stuff like I was much more of the music person and um dancing and all that sort of stuff that yeah yeah well, <laughs> community theater was where I got my start as a writer I had a a little cottage industry for a while there where I would adapt classic novels for the stage so when I was mm. 17 18 I adapted Dracula and wrote and produced it and wrote and directed it for my my local theatre company. We did a show on Friday the 13th at midnight and it sold out and that's one of my, like, all-time proudest ever achievements. That's awesome. 
<laughs> I'm like, was it great? But did I understand vibes? Yes. <laughs> but yeah, that's awesome. Like how many of those did you do? Oh, quite a few. So Dracula was the first one. And then I adapted a bunch of classic stuff for the theatre company I ran through my college. The first thing I ever got paid for was an adaptation of Sense and Sensibility I wrote for Free Rain Theatre Company in Canberra. And that, that's how I got an ABN and could first call myself a professional writer. So I, oh, you got paid to write something. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. I taught myself oh. to write long form, writing for the stage, and then transitioned neatly into novels. <laughs> is it is it sort of weird now to, you know, write books and then not see them performed on stage the same way that, you know, you get to see your adaptation performed? I mean, it would be nice to see it performed, but I think you can tell quite a lot reading my writing that I, I learned to write writing theatre. Like if you read Libby Lawrence, it's so dialogue heavy and yeah. um, like putting in descriptions, I was like, what? No, people will just know that because, you know, writing for the stage, it's just there. You can see it. And the dialogue is so important. So I've always been such a, like, dialogue forward writer and I'm always really careful to make sure my dialogue sounds real and natural. And it's because I learned to write, writing for the stage, and I would always hear my words performed. So I've, I think I've got quite good instincts for writing dialogue now and terrible instincts for writing description. That's so funny. You I think that dialogue the... moves a thing forward so much, though. Like, it makes yeah, it quite dialogue pacey. dialogue is so important. Mm. And, you know, it's funny how, you know, some people sort of say, like, when they're reading a book or whatever, it's like they, like, can see the movie in their mm. mind or something like that. I feel like I actually read anything and see it like a play yeah. and, like, I could stage it myself. And I will die on the hill that that's why so many people didn't like Cursed Child because they don't understand how to read a script yeah yeah fair enough I was like you all just don't get it (laughs) yeah well I mean the thing that bumps for me now is when I read dialogue that sounds stilted and unnatural from other people that's the thing that will throw me out of a text because like that those are the skills that I really have honed in my writing career yeah and it is it is hard to to get to that level I think I think people think it's going to be easy because we all talk but yeah, to actually get that down on paper is and and to have it sound natural and flow is a skill. So yeah, that's that's a, that is a good place. I just never thought that like that. Of course, that's something people do: adapt novels for the stage. But I just <laughs> never thought of it as being something that you could do like as an amateur or start out doing like that that's amazing I mean it was all very like grassroots community stuff and if I hadn't had a, like an <laughs> iron grip over my college theatre company I might not have had so many opportunities <laughs> um, yeah. but I, I mean oh. all for the power plays and the the dynamics there that's that's excellent yeah you know I consolidated my empire and, and it all worked <laughs> I know you know when I was um very early on in the book when you know they're talking about like Libby is fearing getting the call and she's like and then they'll say but you can be on the crew or something I was like oh I've been there so many times um every show I've done crew for I also auditioned for and didn't get into but I remember after I'd done it for a couple of years just like on the I did the spotlights Mm. um there was two new people and I got sent up to like train them how to use the lights we were having a practice during a rehearsal and there's like one on the side and one in the middle and you know we're all on like our headsets talking to each other like oh who's gonna light so and so in this scene and I was like I'll do it I was like this is my power play I get to the light yeah <laughs> whoever in whatever scene it was you know so yeah, yeah. it's 
it brings you right back to. I mean, even with headsets, I remember in one of the theatre companies I was in, there was a power dynamic as to who had which channel on on the cans, on the headsets. Like, Oh, yeah. Just the the smallest things can be part of a political hierarchy in a community theatre. Like, it's it's ridiculous, really. Yeah. And it's nerve-wracking when, like, everyone else knows each other and everything. Michelle knows about that. She was one of the few new people when she came and joined our show. But, you know, it all worked out. But yes, so scary to go into that and like everyone's known each other since they were like five and their grandmas all did musicals together. Everyone's like, (laughs) it was so scary. I really felt for like Libby and also Ella, who's like, I don't know anyone either. Like, (laughs) yes, scary. Yeah. And I mean, I've had that experience in a bunch of theatres before. So, I mean, I thought it was really important to me to, to get that like, oh God, everyone knows each other and who am I kind of vibe. And this is true even for Libby after she's been there for 18 months. She's Because she's always kind of been on the outside. She's never cracked the, the inner circle yet. And, like, she's a bit younger than some of the others as well. And, yeah, I know it's, God, it's such a big deal. Yeah. Um, and when you get to be important <laughs> in a theatre company, like getting a lead role just, like, changes your place in the, the power dynamics so amazingly, particularly when there's, like, a power vacuum at the top and someone's been removed, yeah. like Nightingale has in the world of uh, Unirep in, in the book. And also the person who everyone expects to get the role that Libby gets is um, dating the, the new director. So there's all those tensions as well of, like, her feeling like, oh shit like I've got this thing like am I meant to have this like it's all very yeah it's it's so it's such a great premise and such a great thing to like suck you into the book it's wonderful I'm very curious though why much to do about nothing because like okay of all the things really bad going on all the shows of of all the shows and also is Shakespeare not a little bit boring? Well, look, one, I would contend no. Shakespeare is not a little bit boring, though it, <laughs> it does very much depend on the Shakespeare play. Some of them are yeah. very dull. Um, much Ado, though, Much Ado is lovely. So there are a few reasons that it was Much Ado. One is that when I wrote the first draft of this book, way back when I was a theatre kid, when I was 20, I was a little child when I wrote the very first version of Libby Lawrence. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. Like, I... I picked it because I really liked it and I still really like Much Ado About Nothing. So very complicated reason there. (laughs) Also, I knew I didn't want to do a kind of like clueless 10 things I hate about you thing where it's a a retelling. Like a retelling. I knew I wanted to capture some of the vibes but not do a straight retelling. And one of the things I really like and is really important to me about, about Much Ado About Nothing is the way Beatrice and Benedict's relationship is constructed, which is even when they're furious with each other and they hate each other, like they do at the beginning of the play, they can't stop talking to each other. It's a relationship that is just built on the fact that they love to talk and they love to listen to each other. And so when shit really gets real, um, when like there's the big dramatic heroes failed wedding and everyone is really, really mad at hero who's Beatrice's cousin, Benedict is the one person who stays to listen to Beatrice and he listens to what she says. He doesn't necessarily agree with her point of view, but he takes it on board and she, and he does what she wants anyway. He is the ideal listener for her. He understands everything she says. And that's what I wanted for Libby and Will. So they don't have an argumentative dynamic like Beatrice and Benedict do, but they know how to talk to each other and they know how to listen to each other. And it's their favorite thing to do right off the bat. 
And like yeah. that I think is incredibly romantic. So I wanted that dynamic at the heart of my romance and then to show it in a different light in Much Ado About Nothing. So picking up on some of the vibes without being a retelling. Oh, I love that. I just, I find Shakespeare really hard and like <laughs> my very few interactions with it have been very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and like actually the work, like probably one of the worst was having to do something to do with The Tempest for one of my university things I can't even remember the subject anymore but oh so hard and everyone was like commenting all these things and I was like what am I missing I just don't get that but it's so nice to hear when people do have these things I just don't get it I don't get it but I love hearing that and I did love the way that you brought in like you brought in enough of the actual play dialogue I think and without it it being like too much but you can really get a feel for what the play is like I think how did you know like how much to include how much to leave out how to bring that in without it feeling like weighing down the reader yeah without us also reading much to do about nothing (laughs) yeah I wish I had a really like simple pithy answer the answer is drafting and redrafting and editorial feedback and more drafting and redrafting. So working out which bits were really important uh, and which bits you really needed to see, that was the first thing I did because a lot of putting on a play is rehearsing a play where you are doing the same scene over and over again. And so if I just wrote rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal where it's like, okay, tonight it's act four, scene one, and we saw act four, scene one like 50 times, like no one wants to read that book so there were a few scenes that I picked up on and made sure that we saw little bits of over the course of the play and the most important one of those is the one I was just talking about where shit goes wrong and Benedict listens to Beatrice and they tell each other that they love each other the I love nothing in the world so well as you is not that strange Uh, And even then I had to edit that dramatically. So if you read that scene alongside the the actual Shakespearean scene, you'll be like, oh, Jodie took some liberties with the script here. (laughs) Um, But we can drop that up to Will. Will edited the script and I just just put it in there. It's Will's version. Yeah. (laughs) You edited Shakespeare for your own purposes in the story. Yeah, look, it needed to be punchier. Sorry, Shakespeare. (laughs) And I mean, Shakespeare was writing for performance. He was writing to to be heard. So I feel like he would be okay with me doing this to his work. Exactly. It's a different format. That's not how he wrote his work, which is also why most students, high school and uni students, struggle with Shakespeare. Yeah, not meant to be read, Um, meant to be heard. So, yeah, I know that's a big problem. I did, we did Shakespeare, obviously, in high school. I did Hamlet in Year 12 English, which most people kind of like got enough because your English teacher says, it's like the Lion King, and then people kind of get it. Um, But we also did Othello in drama. So I feel like I had a bit more of a... I did a bit better with it. But yeah, I mean, all this Shakespeare community theatre and everything, it had to have been a pivot from your last Paranormal YA series. Yeah, Uh, not as hard as you would think. And that is for a few reasons. So I had written two drafts of Libby before Valentine was even a glint in my eye. I thought. So I, I I technically started with Libby and then switched over to Paranormal. And then after I wrote Valentine, I wrote another draft of Libby. And then I redrafted Valentine and wrote the rest of that series before I came back to Libby and fourth time was the charm. Can I just ask, like, why why, why did you keep coming back to it? What was it about that that, you know, because a lot of people also will just do that first book and put it away and what, what kept bringing you back? 
this is the book of my heart, you know. Community theatre was so important to me growing up. And I, like, I learned to write a book, writing this book, and then shuttling back and forth to, like, adapting plays for the stage. And, like, sometimes when you write something, you write it and it's done and you can forget about it. But Libby never left. I I knew I had to, to get this book out there. And if fourth time hadn't worked, I would have rewritten it from the ground up another time like again this and there are not I can't think of any other project I would have that amount of patience for but like this one has been with me for my entire professional career it's really important to me this book I'm never going to write another book that is as formative and foundational as this book it is literally not possible that I could do that oh that's special I has it I mean it must have obviously for it to like not be working and you keep coming back to it but like it's changed has it changed really dramatically um well that first version was 237,000 words long because I didn't which you know for context it's now 95,000 words long um I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to write a book and I didn't know how to plan a book. So there there were lots of weird tangents. There were so many dream sequences. No one needs dream sequences. <laughs> um, so some things have changed dramatically because I, I had to stop being so self-indulgent. And that is something that just comes with like with practice and with experience as a writer. But some of the fundamental things about the book have always remained the same. So it's always centered on those same four characters, Libby, Will, Ella, Rourke. The structure has always remained the same, sort of five acts broken up by the four interludes from other perspectives. And the, the central events of the play have always kind of remained the same. So yeah, I just... Just some of the outside stuff. Yeah, the, the heart of the book the spine of the book that has been steady I just had to like you know this is turned into a gross metaphor I had to put the muscle on it I had to put the meat on it I had to put the skin on it I had to I had to turn it into something that was living and breathing and not just a big old mess but to go back to the genre switching part of that so because I was switching between them that wasn't too too bad but switching between them I think actually really helped because Pearl's voice in the Valentine series is so strong that if I had tried to stay in that same kind of universe, I think I would have been in danger of just writing another character that sounds exactly like Pearl. Whereas this is because it's a different genre. Libby's a really different kind of character that actually made the shift a bit easier. And also when you write fantasy, like the Valentine series are, you have to get good at world building. And, uh, turns out contemporaries involve quite a bit of world building as I was shocked to discover when I was writing them was like oh no even in this world that's like just like I had to build the world of community theater in the way that I would you know build a magical world of murder fairies in the valentine series so a lot of the same muscles got flexed even though it's a like genre jump I would never think of that that's so fascinating it is interesting isn't it I feel I I apologize. I do not remember who, but I feel like someone else has said that to us once, Michelle, that like a fantasy author who is like trying a bit more contemporary. And it's like, you would think like a fake world would take so much extra work, but every novel is a fake world. Yeah. Like, cause you're still creating Libby, mm. Libby's world around yeah. her, her university, her friends, her mm. you, like theater rehearsals, like everything, her family. It's all like, that's all still fake. <laughs> and that, really uh, served me well in my new book as well, Here for the Right Reasons, my adult debut, because that's set on reality television. And that's obviously a like very like fake and unfamiliar world. So you've still got to do all the world building work. So having a background writing fantasy has actually, I think, been like a, a bit of a 
like a, a boon to me shifting into contemporary because I've developed those skills in world building that I'm not sure I would have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Can I just ask about your your adult uh, fiction then? Love the idea of something being on reality TV. Excellent. I've actually just spent today listening to a podcast which I would recommend called it's called Unreal, um, and it's a BBC one. Um, all about the history of reality television um, with a focus on Britain. Um, But, yeah, Unreal, a critical history of reality TV, um, really interesting. interesting. And, you know, just hearing about, like, especially, like, how Big Brother got started and then how all the talent shows got started and how we got the X Factor. It's Mm. fascinating. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about your adult yeah, your adult novel. Yeah, so Here for the Right Reasons is the first in what I hope will be a series of three, um, which are all set concurrently on the same season of a show, which is uh, definitely not The Bachelor. Why would you think it was The Bachelor? Um, <laughs> so in this one, our in Here for the Right Reasons, our heroine, Cece, is on reality TV because it's a pandemic. She's broke. She's lost her job. And she's like, well, shit. They pay you a hundred bucks a day on reality TV. So let's see how far I can go. Uh, but on the first night. Na- I love that. Yeah. yeah. So she's really not there for the right reasons. She is there for <laughs> the money, money, money. She's there to find yeah. love and Mr. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, she's totally there for love. Um, but then on the first night, because she goes to pieces when the cameras are on her, she gets eliminated. Um, But then, because of uh, various reasons, no one is allowed to leave the set, including the eliminated contestants. They get moved to another house on the property. Uh, And so it's a romance between this first night eliminated contestant and The Bachelor, um, called The Romeo in this universe. Uh, So what happens when the star of your show falls in love with someone that he eliminated straight away? Love that. What a cool concept. I love that. because Excited to read this. The um, COVID like COVID thing with reality TV, I think is quite interesting as well. Cause I think a lot of shows have had to film where like, you know, everyone has sort of had to isolate before they start. And then they're like all like they're in a show bubble to like film the show. But yeah, what happens to people who are eliminated? Cause they're not allowed to go home yet because then they come back for the finale episode or whatever. It must be so weird. It would almost be like, you should just be producing two shows. Like, the real one and then what happens when everyone gets eliminated and they're all just hanging out. That's essentially what happens on on this show is that they don't expect these hardcore restrictions to come in on the first night so they have to kind of scramble to work out what to do with all the first night eliminated contestants and they eventually put them in another house that they call the convent and (laughs) and so you you see a lot of kind of convent life from Cece's perspective but in the follow-up which is out in February called Can I Steal You for a Second uh that is a romance between two of the contestants that remain in the main house so it's set concurrently at the same time on the same season so these two contestants are both competing for the hero of book one but they are they don't they fall in love with each other instead oops i just i love this i love reality tv did you guys hear about like there was um very early on in 2020 when they were filming big brother somewhere in new south wales and after like a couple of weeks they had to like tell them because they just hadn't told them what had happened and then they were like um so like you're obviously already in lockdown because you're in big brother house but like everyone else is in lockdown and the world's gone um which 
how weird must that have been to like find out like three weeks after everyone else yeah. or something so strange so yeah. the new love island uk is on and i'm watching it every single day and i love it i have a really soft spot in my heart for love island and one of my favorite ever like reality tv romance stories is from love island uk camilla and jamie mm. oh that was before i started watching oh, it 20, oh. like the, the bare bones is camilla you know how everyone on it is like 22 and an instagram influencer um they're like camilla yeah, what do yeah. you do she's like oh i'm 27 i go around to war zones and i diffuse landmines <laughs> it's like what are you doing on love island? why are you on love island that's on the amazing. circle, on the circle UK, um, last year, the last year, the year before, the winner was like this um, woman who was in the military, and she's amazing. Mm. It's crazy, but I always say the reason I find Love Island fascinating, Love Island UK, is the fact that it isn't pre-filmed per se; like it's nearly live. And I want a reality show about how they make it. Yeah, like, that would be really interesting. I want to see that. I just want to know, like, how do you go through, like, 24 hours of footage and be like, this is our storyline for tonight. This is what we're picking. And then have a comedian write the voiceover for it. Like, it's it just must be so much work. Yeah, but it's, it's so compelling. It's yeah. so good. I can't stop watching it. It's, it's trash, but it's oh man I mean there's so much in these worlds no wonder you can set a whole book in community theater and a whole series behind the scenes of reality tv there's just I love the idea of it being like a concurrent thing that you get another look at the because yeah it it reminds me a bit of um when they do Casa Mm Amor on Love Island and you get the two Two houses yeah two villas and stuff oh God, I can't wait to read these books. Well, anyway, there, there, massive there will tangent be a third there. one probably as well, which will also be concurrent. So, um, so yeah, if you read them together, like you can read them all separately, but reading them together, the bits of the puzzle will fall into place. Well, yeah, oh. you get extra bits on everyone. Oh, love it! Oh, that must be blowing your mind though to actually write. <laughs> it, it's been really fun. I'm not, a little not bit lie. Yeah. Oh, love that. Have you done much research watching? Watching reality TV for your research? Well, I've been researching The Bachelor in particular, but reality dating shows more broadly for years and years and years in my academic life. In preparation. So um, (laughs) I, like, sometimes when people are like, did you research for here for the right reasons? I'm like, no. Oh, except for the last five years of my (laughs) academic career. I did that. (laughs) Like, this is just a byproduct of my academic life. Yeah, it's like, this book was an accident, but I have been researching this for a while. Yeah, so that sort of brings us on... Yes, let's jump Nicely. into the academic yeah. life because when I read yeah. in your bio, studies popular culture, I was like, I guess so do I, but it's not my job. <laughs> so it does I don't get paid good. and no one values my opinions on it. <laughs> no, exactly. No one does. Um, so is that as fun as it sounds? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work. Like I don't want to yeah. make it sound like my job is like all fun all the time. I work extremely hard. Yeah, um, no job is all. Yeah, but like as far as jobs go, I think it's a pretty cool one. So I specialize in particular in narratives of romantic love and how we represent those in popular culture. So I've done a lot of work on romance fiction, a lot of work on soap opera, and obviously this is how we get to The Bachelor. Um, yeah, like if it is 
I mean, it's your duty to watch the new season of Love Island yeah. then, clearly. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> somehow tax deductible. <laughs> I mean, I've published a, a lot of scholarship on these various franchises, but I'm particularly interested in like probably the central motivating question of my research career is how the stories we tell about love affect the way we think about love in our lives. Because the way we think about everything is linked to story. Um, and love stories are one of the ways we narrativize our own lives. Um, we often think about our own relationships. We literally learn them from when we're like babies. Yeah, yeah which is so weird. And so we, we know the steps of a love story. We know what it's supposed to look like. Like you meet someone, you fall in love, like maybe you sleep together, you get married, you have children, you can move those things around or like maybe you don't want to get married or don't want to have children or whatever. But the, the, the basic shape remains the same, which is why when a relationship fails, we get that sense we have to go back to the beginning. That's a really like narrative idea. Going back to the beginning yeah. is a narrative term. It's going back to yeah, the beginning of like the story. Yeah, and like starting over after a break. Yeah, and talking about it being yeah. a new chapter. We we think about our lives in these incredibly yeah. narrative terms. And so I'm really interested in that link in terms of love stories in particular. Oh, wow. That even is so even to, to bring in something that's in the news a lot lately, even when Rebel Wilson came out over the weekend, she said, yeah. you know, I thought I was looking for a Disney prince. Maybe I was looking for a Disney princess. Yeah. And, like, literally it's so ingrained in the way that we grow up and especially, I think, as young girls – um, we get that a little bit more, but honestly, like from, from fairy tales and everything, like it, it's just so like, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's yeah. everywhere. So it's fascinating yeah, and like to all know the tropes that like, of like how yeah. it's supposed to work, you know, even, and even in more modern times and everything, like Michelle's one of these annoying people who was on Tinder for a couple of months and she's getting married in October. So, you know, like. It wasn't so even annoying. a couple of months. Oh, <laughs> see, like so annoying. Well, I've, so... Done some, I've done some research on dating apps, actually. I teamed up with um, yeah. Lisa Porterland, who's a sociologist who is a dating apps expert. And so she kind of brought the like sociology side and I brought the narrative side. But we, um, we did a study of people using dating apps. And what we found is that so many people on dating apps want to meet cute which again, extremely narrative term, comes straight out of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but you can't really have a meet-cute on dating apps because to have a meet-cute, you have to not be looking for love. That's one of the rules. You have to kind of stumble into it. And if you're on the apps, you are looking for love. And so people yeah. like had to negotiate this disappointment. They were like, I, I want to meet someone, you know, where I just yeah. bump into them into the supermarket or we like, you know, collide in a bookstore. And so they felt kind of bad about being on the app because yeah. they I spill coffee on yeah. them. Yeah. Because oh, you're supposed oh. to find love when you're not looking for it. That's so, I mean, so like amazing and also like kind of obvious and you're just like, yeah. oh my God. And I like fully like leaned back like, ah, oh, because even when you think like, obviously that's what dating apps are for. Mm everyone still wants a nice story this is what I think about when I'm not writing novels (laughs) which is one of the reasons why I wanted to write about The Bachelor honestly because how do you write a love story when everyone there is there for the right reasons when they're looking for love how do you craft a romance when seemingly there's no conflict so they, fi- they find love in the most likely place. You know, it is funny then that like by that logic that there aren't more successful relationships out of the Bachelor franchise mm. globally because 
if most people are not there for the right reasons and you would think that by that logic they would sort of stumble into it anyway because they're being forced to meet lots of different people and like go on hot air hot air balloon rides and like yeah. play paintball and everything and like wouldn't isn't that the perfect story and it still doesn't seem to work I mean some of it I think is to do with time like I read I can't remember where I read it what a terrible academic um but all up if you if you get to the final of The Bachelor you might have spent 40 hours total with The Bachelor over the course of two months which is such a small amount of time that's crazy like that's like when you start a new job you know your co-workers better the person who's training you mm. that's like a full-time work week yeah and oh, like yeah, I think that's I I wonder if that's the thing about Love Island as well and maybe why you enjoy watching it. I definitely enjoy the friendships that develop, not just the romantic relationships, because they are literally together twenty four seven for those eight weeks. And by the end, I always feel like as the outgoing people leave, I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna miss them. Like you do get to know their quirks as the viewer. Mm. So even though a lot of relationships break up eventually after Love Island, it still seems to me from the people I follow that especially amongst the men, there still seems to be very strong, like, friendships there, yeah. which I really love. Like, I and, and I, I wonder if that's more to do with the time thing. But, yeah, I, I remember my mum saying, always being like, especially when I started dating Jack, she's like, you don't fully know someone until after, like, three months. So, you know, that whole idea of like that, especially on The Bachelor when they like propose and you're like, hang on, if you've only spent 40 hours with someone, like, please give me a break. The the contestants spend all all day, every day together. So you get really strong friendships emerging from the contestant groups. It's just, you can see why it it, it doesn't always work out with the lead because you really just don't see them that much. God, it's so interesting. So interesting. Did we have another question about your research? I think we did. Yes, we do. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about sex. Okay. okay, so so one of your, so I said at the start that one of my academic assignments was to do a short story and I'm um, going to go into way too much detail here on the podcast, but I did a, a short story about a girl who wants to have sex and she tries and she can't and it turns out it's because she has vaginismus Mm. so I was sort of looking to challenge the idea of what like losing your virginity actually looks like um the sort of heteronormative ideas we have around sex and so when I read that you have looked into all of that sort of stuff I was like yes tell me more about this what have you found in your research about the way that we approach virginity in particular in okay so I could talk about this for like many hours (laughs) this is what my PhD was on so like researching this was my life for three and a half years and I then turn it into a book but speaking so just like a quick summary (laughs) extreme top line bullet points my I looked at female virginity loss specifically so I want to be clear that this does not apply to to men more broadly but Generally, the stories we tell to young women about virginity loss make it clear that unless you lose your virginity in a romantic context, you haven't really done it the right way in scare quotes. There's lots of pressure to do things with the right person at the right time in the right way. Like this idea of rightness around virginity loss really, really uh, permeates and percolates at that kind of dominant cultural level. 
And there was this big kind of disconnect in the 20th century because the right time moved from being when you're married to when you're in love. And how do you know when you're in love? Like this is what the whole like Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake thing kind of hinged on in oh. in the 2000s really. <laughs> like he was, yeah. you know, he was like, oh, we had premarital sex. And she was like, but we were in love. And that was like kind of her like image recuperation strategy. The introduction to my book is about Britney Spears. Um <laughs> <laughs> but also I found – I did a lot of research in this book about kind of romance and the intersection of virginity loss narratives. So I read a lot of romance novels, but I also read a lot of autobiographical stories about virginity loss. I think seven – I've got a table somewhere, but it was like 780 uh, over the course oh, wow. of – there were anthologies of these. I just read anthologies. And you can divide them kind of roughly into what I called active and passive stories. So in active stories, you have a girl going out to being like, yes, I want to lose my virginity. They kind of think about what the experience they want to look like. They really think about it and then kind of enact that script. Passive stories are the it just happens stories where they're like, oh shit, I lost my virginity. And often people feel really strange and weird about it. And a lot of the depictions mm -hmm. of virginity loss we see in fiction, because they are embedded in this romance narrative, are ultimately very positive, even if they don't feel positive at the time, because you, you lose it in the right way to the right person, et cetera, et cetera. So something I wanted to do with Libby Lawrence, circling all the way back around to her, was give her one of these passive stories, like stories where it's like, it's not bad in that it's not coercive or rape or anything like that, but it's... It's not with the right person. It's not in the right place and yeah. it's not in the right time. And she has to kind of deal with that over the course of the novel that, you know, she hasn't lived up to what this script for virginity loss should be like. And she really has to, she realizes she made a decision that wasn't that smart. She's very hung up on being intelligent over the course of the book. And she's like, oh, that was a really <laughs> stupid decision. What was I doing? Am I stupid actually? Oh. And so it kind of becomes one of the like hinge points for a lot of her identity crises yeah. over the, the novel. So that's only a very minor spoiler. She loses her virginity in literally the prologue. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so what did you find in your research as well about like the age differences and stuff and when someone's because because I feel like there's also there was certainly I felt a lot of pressure and I feel like this is repeated in the media I see that you know it's the classic you, like American teen movie thing where they're like yeah. I need to have sex the summer before I go yeah. to college I've got to have sex at prom. yeah like there's this deadline on when you need to do it otherwise you are this that yeah the but other. they're like I can't go to college yeah. wouldn't oh, that be no, the worst that thing be so <laughs> uh, so I didn't do like a yeah. direct demographic study of this but broadly speaking it is that kind of like end of high school you start to see that pressure emerge but it's much more intense for boys I think than, than girls yeah. um, because uh, losing your virginity makes you a man, whereas there isn't really quite the same sense that losing your virginity makes you a woman. No. Yeah, no. Yeah. And if you lose it the wrong way, then you're a slut. Like it's – Even at all, it's kind of lose-lose. Yeah. If you do, yeah, you do your slut, you don't, you're a prude, so you can't Yeah, really there, there's no like exactly. I, ideal <laughs> way for women to behave. Turns out sexism is real. Like who knew? Yeah. And of course, this also yeah. intersects. I thought we got also intersects with ideas of race. Like something that comes up over and mm -hmm. over again is that it, it is the I, the image of virgin we have is nearly always a white woman, and it's 
almost never a, a black woman in particular. Um, like yeah. black women are always hypersexualized in kind of the, the cultural imagination. And so there's all this like baggage yeah. of race and sexuality and like name of marginalization, throw it in here. Um, it intersects with discourses of virginity in some way. You can totally sit in like our five minute discussion or something. You can totally see how you spend years and years on this and write, was it two books about all of this? Like, and not to mention Libby. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, Libby really did arise to some extent out of my virginity research. Like I'd written drafts of it before I wrote my PhD, but I think I had to do that PhD to to understand how to tell that story because it's it's not one like I don't want to say I'm the first person to ever do it because I am not but it's it's not a story we see as often the like it Mm. just happened that was not right this is not going to be recuperated into a romance narrative in any way well shit what do I do with this information kind of story well then to bring like almost everything we've talked about all back together how do you feel about the like new adult sort of classification of fiction or older YA fiction just because because I feel like generally people go oh I guess it's like new adult just because they're 18 or just because they're uni or just because there's sex in the book necessarily sometimes I feel like like it I feel like a few years ago when I was heavily like active on a few years ago probably 10 now um years ago when I feel like when people were starting to talk about new adult as a thing it was code for like this is an erotic book but with like like yeah 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 but it feels very different now and like we've um you know we've spoken about we love social cue by Kate Mm. Kerr we've spoken about we've spoken to um Sarah Ayub about the cult of Mm. romance and we we keep saying we love seeing that like first year of uni that sort of time frame discussed in books and it doesn't necessarily have to be full of sex for it to be like new adult but it also feels kind of like we maybe I'm just not in those groups as much but we've sort of stopped talking about new adult yeah. as a thing so conveniently conveniently I've also written yeah. a book about this uh it's called it's called <laughs> imaginatively new adult fiction and what I found in in new adult is that it is a real moving target in terms of what that phrase means so when it was first coined in 2009 by Sir Martin's press they were explicitly looking for YA but older so YA but 18 to 24 um, but then yeah. like they, they had this big competition and the term was popularized during that. But as far as I can tell, they never acquired anything out of that competition. Term went to ground, but it got picked up on Goodreads, slowly started getting applied to some traditionally published books. So like Bloodlines by Rochelle Mead was one, but increasingly to self-published contemporary first person romance. And I don't think it was accidental that this was the same time as the wave of uh, Twilight fanfic pull to publish that gave us Fifty Shades of Grey um, was happening because you had these new adult, all first person contemporary kind of erotic edge romance, some of them like a little bit they all had the same type of yeah, cover. Yeah, some of them a little bit messy, some of them a little bit dark. Yeah. This is the origin story of Colleen Hoover, for one. Um, Coho, who's yeah. now really big now. Um, I just said the word now like Yeah, love the five book times. Talks, book talks bought that back yeah. like yeah. Uh, so you got this yeah. this huge kind of crest of the new adult bestsellers. And in my um in my book, I've got a table of 
everyone that made the combined print and ebook New York Times bestseller list between 2012 and 2014. And it's the longest table I've ever created in my life. And if I had just used the ebook list, it would have been like four times as long. Uh, but then once the boom kind of tapered off 2014, New Adult kind of retreated back to the realms of self-publishing. And now no one can agree on what this term means. And so we we don't really use it in traditional publishing at the moment. So you've got books like mine, like Social Cue, like The Cult of Romance that are set at university, but they're being marketed and sold as YA because there's never really been that institutional buy-in for the term new adult, at least not in that like non-first-person contemporary sexy romance sense. And because people in the industry will be like, well, wait, what is this? Even though then, because the char- it might say in the blurb that it's the first year of uni or the- leading up to the character's 18th birthday or leading up to your best friend's wedding, like in a cult of romance. And it's like, wait, how old are they? This says it's YA. And I don't know. I feel like we do need a word, but maybe why uh, new adult is not yeah well I I don't think it's so much the term I think it's institutional buy-in so this is one of the reasons why the St Martin's Mm. version didn't take off is they couldn't sell it to booksellers in that they couldn't make booksellers yeah they just want to know what shelf they they couldn't create and yeah they wanted new shelving in the stores and books and Barnes and Noble in particular wouldn't do it this is what I could tell in my research anyway like it yeah. may have been different and so for that to be created as like an extra genre category that paratext is really important um the epitext the kind of stuff around the book yeah. that isn't the book itself um and so there's a... it's interesting because i think there's some of that in fantasy as well like um our friend indy is a big fantasy reader and every time i go into a bookshop with her she'll be like oh this is not ya you know it's just fantasy so they profit on the YA yeah. shelf and it's not well that, that's a big um and then issue it's a big issue for female authors in fantasy actually is female authors of adult fantasy mm-hmm. get shelved as YA just because they're women like which there's just an assumption yeah, that all girls are writing <laughs> YA like what like, yeah nonsense mm-hmm. shelving yeah. matters that's that's so fascinating it's kind yeah. Of wonderful. yeah well people I mean it's a bit funny to be like oh they just need to know what shelf to put it on but p- readers need to know what shelf to go looking for something as well so like that categorization is people who aren't like obsessed with books like us and who actually (laughs) just go into the bookstore and go I'm going to go to the adult section or I'm going to go to the romance section or I'm going to go to the young adult section like there's a term we use in scholarship paratext which is all the stuff around a book which isn't the book itself so if it's peritext it's in the volume so like the cover and the blurb and whatnot but epitext encompasses things like where it's shelved and we call paratext well Gerard Jeanette the theorist of paratext calls them thresholds of interpretation they're doorways that you have to walk through to get to the book and they change the way that you see it and shelving is a key access point and so, we, like, yeah, so like I always make my students study paratext because I'm like, no, you have to go through all these doors before you get to the text. Tell me what the doors are telling you. Yeah, because you have to – it tells you so much. Like, I mean, what shelf it's on in a traditional bookstore, obviously, what size the book is, like, is, like, older YA. I think we were talking about this with Sarah, that great paperback and YA is traditionally a B format, which is the smaller one, people don't know. Um, and in and the so- UK – like fiction is published in hardback but like a romance will always just be in paperback you won't have a romance book that comes out in hardback yeah it'll always just be a 
the format paperback, which I find fascinating. Yeah, so it's like that if you're being published in hardback, thing. like you're, yeah, you're. It's it's more highbrow than just your normal. And when people yeah. say don't judge a book yeah. by its cover, it's like, sorry, you you do though. That cover is telling you so much important information. I know, mm-hmm. like all the historical mm-hmm. fiction with a woman in a red coat turned around running into away yeah. into something. Or like, you know exactly what yeah. you get when you pick up one of those. When I think about new adult, I have a very specific image in my mind of the type of covers I was seeing. And the fact that you said it tailed off in 2014 makes so much sense because I was really into blogging at uni and like 2012, 2013, it would have been like all yeah, around those were me. The big, big years. So it's not just that I'm not, yeah. yeah, it's not just I'm not as into it or like in it's those worlds it anymore. It genuinely it. has. Yeah. Gone. So hearing you say that, I was like, "Oh, it's our fault. <laughs> it's readers. We like latched onto it." <laughs> well, like, I we never do? read any of them. Like, it just wasn't. It's not really my sort of thing. And the covers always put me off because they were always very like Fifty Shades of Grey erotic sort of. Yeah. Well, the new adult and erotic romance booms went right alongside each other and there was obviously a necessary amount of overlap. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I wonder if, I wonder if if new adult had been at a different time or if it hadn't oh it's really interesting to to think about how it could have evolved or how it can evolve without the 50 shades of gray sort of side of things as well how do you think it how do you think it could evolve in the next well i mean it's been having an identity crisis for a while now but i think one of the ways if, if the term sticks around it will continue to evolve and we're certainly seeing some of this is that it will branch out from that very kind of narrow first person contemporary romance like i think we're seeing a lot more sort of new adult in scare quotes fantasy um it's that that kind of idea of like millennial adulthood gen z adulthood is starting to percolate out into other genres um but even then sometimes new adult that phrase is used just to refer to alternating perspective first person contemporary romance so um i don't know if that term has done its dash or like what the deal is do we need this term who who knows um yeah it's it's still very very like it's not a um, we won't know for a while yeah. yet what will really happen hey I always sort of thought like oh it's like mature young adult like it's like and maybe that's because I thought of new adult as being that just like trashy erotic fiction maybe that's why I was like oh like saying it's like for older readers and it deals with more mature themes than just like high school maybe I don't know yeah, that's but yeah you've got me interrogating look in my book I define new adult three times and then at the end I'm like but none of these definitions are right even because what it means keeps changing (laughs) like classic classic academic research I mean I was making an overarching point about how you can't rely on like old definitions of genre like if I look at a definition of romance from 1982 Mm. it's probably not going to be accurate it's not going to be in step with like what's happening today and that's something that happened when there was like the first wave of scholarship on Twilight is everyone was quoting all this stuff from the 80s and it's like but that a that is a definition of Mills and Boone specifically and b um it's not the 80s anymore we've moved on yeah it's been a while (laughs) oh my goodness well this has just been such a great chat Jodie thank you so much so fascinating talked about so many different things um and it was all so fun and so interesting thank you oh my pleasure I think we actually probably didn't talk about Libby Lawrence 
as much <laughs> as we would usually talk about another book, but you've not got in as much this... detail, but it's all in there in the theater yeah. and the yeah, like, theater, virginity, romance. For... It's all happening. Yeah, it's all in That's there. That's all you need to know. There's a charismatic bad boy that is genuinely terrible and does not have a secret heart of gold. <laughs> for once, thank God. Yeah, he's the statistical outlier. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to chat. I feel like I've learned so much and you make me want to do academic stuff again until I remember that actually it's a pain in my ass and I probably won't um (laughs) but thank you so much where can people find and follow you online so I'm on twitter at Jodie McKay j-o-d-i-m-c-a I'm on instagram at Jodie McAllister so it's McAllister with one l and also newly on tiktok at Jodie McAllister so if you Uh, on those platforms come and follow me particularly tiktok because i don't know what i'm doing and i feel like i need the emotional support excellent well we will follow you on there um and if anyone's interested in following us caitlin is our is our handle on there at better words pod it sure is thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on instagram at better words pod and follow me michelle at unfinished bookshelf and me caitlin at just a bookish babe If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.